Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Michael Leader. And I'm Leila Latif. And I'm Charles Bramasco. And coming up on the show today, Zola, a tall tale adapted from a Twitter thread, Still Water, in which Matt Damon is a dad taking the law into his own hands, and in Film Club, the Betty Davis classic, Now Voyager. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Welcome back, listeners. Welcome back, Layla. Welcome back, Charles. Charles, it's been a couple of months since we last heard from you. Uh, how's everything going out in the States? We're very jealous at the moment because you've just got the Green Knights and we have no idea when we're getting it. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, um, I don't know just how jealous you should be because while we do have the Green Knight, it looks like we are increasingly going to have fewer and fewer things that uh, the pandemic is maybe ramping back up in the States. Really, it's, it's very hard to tell where things are headed. But I personally... I'm doing just fine. Um, I enjoyed The Green Knight. I've seen uh, a few good ones from the fall recently. They, I think, have been rushing to show the press as many things as they can before things maybe return to not screening in theaters. Who knows? Uh, but it's it's been good, yeah, both in terms of movies and uh, for me. Hmm. And Layla, how are you doing? Anything exciting you at the moment, keeping you busy? Um, yeah, just kind of getting ready. I'm going to go to Venice for the film festival in a mm. couple of weeks and then TIFF straight after that. But I think that's probably going to be virtual. Uh, yeah, so kind of very excited for uh, for all of those wonderful things. Really want to go see Dune and then, you know, get on a gondola. <laughs> Have some gelato as a, as a place for it. My, my question, uh, the, you know, with the UK-US divide, does anyone uh, in the UK call it June? Oh, this this was doing a bit of the rounds on Twitter, wasn't it? How we pronounce is Dune or June, isn't it? Yeah, and we're we're, we're June people, I guess. I'm a gotcha. June person. Okay. Yeah. That's dignified. That, that's yeah. <laughs> well, because otherwise it's a bit like kind of a, something that you yell falling out of a window. Dune. <laughs> June. <laughs> so, Charles, do you have an opinion on that? Is that sort of like a different pockets of the US? pronounce it differently or oh i mean pretty much everybody here is going to say dune but i think you know in in the american imagination of you know the charming mary poppins british accent everyone's like okay to go see june you know in 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 our minds everyone is still a 60s chimney sweep and so uh that's hard to let go of well that has been my experience actually so good you're perfectly accurate on that but i'm wondering in june do they ever say the word june will we ever have this clarified that's a great question that is a great question. Well, 
you're going to be seeing the film before most of us, Layla, so you'll have to report back. That'll be the first thing I expect to read in your review. <laughs> There's your lead right there. <laughs> right, enough about future films. Let's get on with this week's films. Up first, we have Zola. So let's start off our review of Zola with a bit of synopsis recap. Zola, a Detroit waitress, strikes up a new friendship with a customer, Stephanie, who seduces her to join a weekend of dancing and partying in Florida. What at first seems like a glamorous trip rapidly transforms into a 48-hour journey involving a nameless pimp, an idiot boyfriend, some Tampa gangsters, and other unexpected adventures in this wild, see-it-to-believe-it tale. So Charles, they say see it to believe it tale, but it was originally tweet it to believe it or read the tweets to believe it. This is adapted from a Twitter thread that went viral a few years ago. Um, is it suitable or suited to the big screen adaptation treatment? I think so, yeah. Um, part of, you know, when uh, Isaiah King, who I believe was the one who originally posted these tweets, uh, at the time when she did that, everyone instantly recognized the potential for movie adaptation in this, you know, anecdote in a way that, we had never seen from someone just posting tweets before because it really has so many of the narrative elements that we consider, you know, integral to a movie. It has suspense, it has twists, it has, you know, um, it did the very first line, which has now become sort of repeated almost as a meme. It says, uh, y'all want to hear a story about how me and this bitch here fell out? It's kind of long, but it's full of suspense. And that is accurate. Uh, it, it has, you know, it like a great story being told to you by a friend, it has all of the you know, narrative uh, suspense that that you'd be looking for from a from a movie. Hmm. Layla, what do you make of of Zola, and how do they actually go about? Because you know, a Twitter thread is just text. So, what's the, the 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 way they've stylistically adapted it to the big screen as well? Yeah, I mean, they're very kind of conscious throughout to keep referring back to like how this started. And like, uh, there's kind of a little Twitter that sounds constantly popping up, and like you know, even the like the characters are they're very present on social media it's all about taking things it's all about posting stuff but yeah i remember so well when that twitter thread went viral and my favorite moment of the entire thing was when ava duvernay said look at the amazing stories we're forgetting from the ghetto and zola responded bitch i'm from the suburbs (laughs) (laughs) and so yeah i was really really excited for zola and it has been like a long term waiting because this premiered this is sundance of last year right so this Mm. is like a year and a half in the making and I, i think it was for the most part um really worth the wait and um uh, you know, and it has that kind of like slightly chaotic energy of the of the Twitter thread, and it kind of leans into, you know, really playing around with that. This is to- completely told from Zola's perspective. This is her take on this. And at one point in the film, I don't want to kind of give too much away. They start they tell it from the perspective of a different character, and that is just done with it is so funny when they kind of get the more like playful they get with the form so yeah i was for the most part here for zola um i don't think it was perfect um i think the ending the kind of final 15 minutes or so really fizzled out for me but um there's lots to, lots to recommend it and for me in particular colin domingo who i think is just on like what a winning streak of just amazing performance after amazing performance after amazing performance and this is kind of him as we've never quite seen him before i mean i mean how would you go about describing that performance because it's quite a a firecracker of a performance isn't it 
Yeah, he really is leans into kind of doing this, like the man with the charming artifice and then the sinister flip side to him. I mean, he it's only kind of about halfway through the film that we even get to see like who this person truly is and just how dangerous he is and his, you know, and he really is able to transform in an absolute instant. Um, yeah, so very much here for the year of Coleman Domingo. Yeah, absolutely. So Charles, for me, this film is almost half knowns and half unknowns. So Common Domingo, know quite well from his work, Riley Keough, kind of playing in similar waters to maybe American Honey and films she's done in the past. But we have newcomer Taylor Page as Zola and then Janixa Bravo, the director, who I hadn't really seen any work from before. Um, any sort of highlights or standouts within the, the cast and crew? Well, yeah, um, I think, you know, both of the people we mentioned, uh, if you keep your ear to the ground, uh, you, you'd have heard of them maybe a little bit by now. Taylor Page was actually really excellent last year in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, who she also mm-hmm. played someone who had this very sort of like earthy sexuality to her, which was interesting. And um, Janixa Brava, actually, if you look at her previous work, she directed a movie called Lemon uh, not so long ago, and she directed uh, key episodes of Mrs. America, the television show, as well as uh, Atlanta, Donald Glover's TV show. And I think the through line connecting all of these things is that she has uh, a really interesting idea about blackness, which is that it is defined in part by its proximity to whiteness like the uh, racial identity has to inscribe itself against uh it's it's opposite in the same way that whiteness does that white people in her movies are always trying to ingratiate themselves with black people always trying to fit in with black people to really disastrous results and so you get a really a comedy of awkwardness that arises from this both from the increasingly sweaty attempts of white people to be cool to fit in to you know emulate and absorb blackness and then the equal awkwardness from the black people in the proximity and realizing that resisting that can be can have dangers resisting that can have uh, you know social repercussions and Mm so uh you see both you know a really uh, a thoughtfulness in her work that translates itself really well to comedy cringe comedy yeah i think she's probably weakest as a filmmaker the further away she gets from comedy because she did i mean I, i i also really enjoyed lemon Um, But she did an episode of the awful Amazon show uh, Them earlier this year. And I would say it was actually the worst episode. So, you know, it's not all been gold. As as we sort of bring this review to a close, this is one of those films that's had... The, the you know the, the the full marketing push the trailer the soundtrack the stars the gifs already made doing the rounds seeing them used a lot as reactions already um but in in when films are boiled down to such essential parts it can be quite you might think it can be can be hard to kind of lose to it can be quite hard to then follow the thread of what is actually of substance to this sort of film um you know the, the way it's marketed you might see it as interchangeable maybe with something like I know Spring Breakers, but it's a very different film to that, or is it similar to that, uh, Charles, Layla? Uh, and what's what can we take away from this film that will linger with us afterwards? Yeah, I think um, there's a temptation to see it as uh, superficially similar to something like Spring Breakers because it is also about young hotties getting up to trouble in, in Florida. But I think, you know, formally, in, in terms of four man of content, hugely different. Uh, the atmosphere is different here because there is to go with, uh, you know, the the fun and the comedy, there is a real sense of lurching dread that this is about someone who is really out of her comfort zone, has been brought under, you know, as we learned, false pretenses uh, to a situation where she does not, uh, moment by moment, immediately feel safe. 
And so that, you know, exists very uncomfortably, which is a unique thing uh, to this movie. And I think also she has a lot more on her mind about uh, race, about how race is performed, about how it is perceived. Um, and so, yeah, I think of this as its own thing. One thing, actually, I wanted to track back on uh, about the ending. My, because I, I agree that it ends in a very abrupt fashion, but my defense of that is that uh, I, I like that as kind of more like an anecdote than like a formal, you know, Hollywood screenplay. It ends kind of like an episode of Seinfeld. That's how I think about it. Whereas just like, <laughs> if you imagine it ending with the Curb Your Enthusiasm music, it fits so well. You're like, oh, okay, yeah. It's just like, oh, how did I end up here? And then we're out of here. Uh, very Larry David. Yeah, I mean, I guess I think there's like certain films that I've been watching recently. I was rewatching Small Axe, and I kind of inserting these like additional happy endings into into these films, being like, "Oh, well, the film ends here, but the real happy ending is that you get a movie made about you at the end." Yeah. And I was like, "But this film is so hyper aware of the fact that she's going to be viral, and it's referenced throughout." I was just like, "Well, I think we kind of could have had a moment of triumph, which wouldn't have broken the fourth wall in a way that didn't make sense with everything that came before it." But you know, I appreciate it's boring to criticise films for not doing exactly what you wanted them to do. I would say that I slightly felt with it, like, and I do think Taylor Page was really good, was that they do kind of make her the straight man in a way that I don't think was entirely true to the voice that I got from that initial Twitter thread. Like, everybody else is going a mu much bigger than her. And I, you know, and I guess, I suppose... If we're telling stories from our own perspectives, we never think of ourselves as being kind of like wild, but it just kind of slightly struck me that like Zola as a voice from Twitter is a very, very funny person and a, has a real kind of like eccentricity about her. And it did seem a shame that we kind of made her a little smaller. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Let's put some scores on Zola then. Charles, I'll come to you first. This is in anticipation, enjoyment in retrospect. Uh, anticipation, I would say a four. Uh, this is something that definitely caught 
my interest, both, you know, the nature of the adaptation as well as the cast. I've always, you know, been a big fan of Riley Keough. And so this is something I was definitely looking forward to. Uh, I would say Enjoyment 5. Uh, that is maybe the strongest suit of this movie, that it is a compulsively watchable, extremely enjoyable movie that really kind of creeps up on you after you leave the theater and you realize just how messed up a lot of the parts, even the ones that were comedic, uh, really were. And then I suppose in retrospect, I uh, I might stick with five. I think it stands up to a lot of scrutiny and analysis. I really, this is one of my favorite movies of the year, to be honest. Um, I think that it becomes more quotable the more you think about it. I think uh, the character dynamics really open up the more you think about them. Uh, mm. Yeah, big fan. Before we move over to Layla, Charles, can you put that in context? What are the favorite films of the year? The Suicide Squad? Space Jam 2. <laughs> uh, Space Jam 2. All about Space Jam 2. Yeah, you know that. Um, no, yeah, I, I really love that one a lot. I love Bergman Island uh, out of Cannes. Um, I love Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar, which actually makes kind of an amazing companion piece because it is also about two women on their way to Florida to have a spiritually transformative experience. Uh, really good stuff. Okay. Well, Layla, what's your scores for Zola? Well, I'm just really glad that Charles didn't say The Green Knight because I would have had to start <laughs> weeping. Uh, yeah, I think it's a fours across the board one for me. So yeah, very excited to see it. Um, it's been a long time coming and you know I'm a big fan of this cast. And then yeah, four in terms of enjoyment, I think in particular a lot of the stuff they do, the sound design of this film is really interesting. And it's just nice to kind of see someone just like making choices i suppose uh yeah and then four in retrospect not perfect but i had a lot of fun with it well there you have it listeners strong recommendation for zola from layla and charles this week let us know what you make of it if you do go and watch it this weekend the usual channels at lw lies on twitter truth and movies at tcolondon.com via email up next we have another new release this week Stillwater. From director Tom McCarthy, Stillwater follows Bill, an American oil rig roughneck from Oklahoma who travels to Marseille to visit his estranged daughter, who's imprisoned for a murder she claims she did not commit. Confronted with language barriers, cultural differences and a complicated legal system, Bill builds a new life for himself in France as he makes it his personal mission to exonerate his daughter. So Layla, introduce us to the world of Stillwater. This is Tom McCarthy who, you know, spotlight big oscar player a few years ago back with what feels like another almost you know slab of drama yeah yeah um yeah he's he's an interesting guy uh tom mccarthy he, he um sort of his i think he made a children's film in between spotlight and, uh, and, the, and this the film, one timmy failure colon mistakes were made yes yeah, you know, real, real renaissance <laughs> man, able to turn himself to quite a few different forms. Uh, yeah, so this is him more kind of returning to uh, sort of drama with a big D. It's it's a very strange um, experience to go and see it I'm, um, because the marketing of it, I don't think really lines up with what the film is going to be. Like when I went in to go and see this film, uh, all I'd seen is one trailer and it made it look like it was going to be kind of taken or something along those lines. So I was like very pleasantly surprised when this film started and it was actually just a lot more unpredictable and, and stranger than that. And it just shifts a lot from scene to scene where you're kind of going from, you know, his um, 
big quest to try and free his daughter and then like oh he's now befriended this charming little french girl and wait a second the legal system is so terrible but like oh my goodness look at this beautiful french twinkly lighted restaurant and then like yeah it takes a lot of turns a lot of big swings happen in still water and I think for a lot of people that might work for them against it but for me it kind of kept me really engaged the whole way through where like not knowing what it was going to do next kind of made the whole thing kind of fascinating to me um so yeah I had a lot better time with Stillwater than I thought I was going to I, I find it very funny that this film was called Stillwater because you know Stillwater's Run Deep is sort of what the criticism of Spotlight or a lot of the praise of Spotlight was that it wasn't a very flashy movie but had a lot going for it. Is that a similar deal here, Charles? Or it sounds like some of those twists and turns are attempts to I kept, inject uh, some excitement. I kept waiting for a scene where Matt Damon goes to a restaurant and someone's like, sparkling water, monsieur? And he goes, no, still water. <laughs> uh, that never happened. So so that's maybe for the best. That's probably why I'm not a Hollywood screenwriter. Um <laughs> But no, yeah, I think that this is also something that definitely purports to be a grown-up original concept drama for adults, which is something a lot of people are hurting for, and that I think Tom McCarthy proved himself capable of delivering uh, with Spotlight. This, I'd say, both in terms of sort of the pitch, the the tone at which the movie is pitched, and even, I guess, the scale as well. Uh, it concludes with like this huge... Uh, set piece at a soccer stadium which is uh, I don't know. Uh, it, it's it's a different movie it has a different texture it has a different uh, set of ideas and preoccupations although I guess uh, if you were to trace a line from um, Spotlight to this one it is about the fallibility of American character uh, the whole idea of Matt Damon being in France he's not just an American in France he's from Oklahoma he is like a possibly trump voting there's like a very i think kind of cop-out moment where they're like his french girlfriend's like did you vote for trump and he's like no but only because i can't vote because i'm a felon and they don't let felons vote and i'm like well okay so he would have then uh point being is that he's you know talking all this stuff about being american and being proud to be an american abroad and how that sort of uh represents you know the american bull in the china shop of foreign policy about how we just sort of go to other countries and try to get our you know whatever we want to get done done without always caring about who we use or how people are affected. So Layla, you said that uh, Stillwater is drama with a big D and you could say the big D is Matt Damon. Uh, yeah. Where where do you sit with uh, Matt Damon nowadays? I don't mean really, can't really place where he is in his career arc and what's he doing on screen here? Is it um, you know good? Is, is is he doing good work? Um, I've had a pretty strong dislike for Matt Damon ever since um, his final season of Project Greenlight, in which he kind of showed himself to not be a, a great ally, shall we say? But like for the most part, I would say I've never liked him that much because I find him quite embarrassing as a screen presence like he's got a sort of earnest confidence and self-belief that I find unsettling for the most part I you know even going back as far as something like um Goodwill Hunting like I just remember watching it and thinking this is so embarrassing that you wrote yourself a role and you wrote yourself as like a super sexy genius who's got like who's like great with the ladies and like everybody doesn't even appreciate how smart he really is down you know deep down so yeah not really here for Damon but I do appreciate that in this role he does really kind of disappear into this character like 
he's doing quite interesting stuff I think with his like jaw and his gait and you know just the hunched shoulders with the giant bald eagle tattoo like a part of me thought that at times maybe he was going a bit too broad with it like maybe this was a bit of a caricature of a Trump voter but I've never been to Oklahoma so maybe Charles knows better than me I think uh, the thing about Matt Damon is that he can, and we've seen that he can uh, do blue collar. That's, uh, I think, a mode he's very comfortable in. But this is a very different sort of blue collar person than you would find in Boston. Um, to to the extent that I think is almost like sort of sketched implausibly, uh, the way that the film tries to convey that he is an unpretentious blue collar guy can sometimes be, like you said, really, really broad. Um his girlfriend is an actress. She is a theatrical actress, uh, which when he hears that, he's like, well, I don't know nothing about no plays. I'm just like, people in Oklahoma know about plays. He can watch. He can watch <laughs> a play. He's probably watched, you know, kids' school plays or whatever. My point being that um, I think it is almost a sort of, I hate making these dichotomies, but it's almost a coastal idea of what middle America is like. That, you know, it's like, these are simple, proud people, which is always like a ridiculous way to, to think of any uh, group of people so that the film carries itself almost like a like a true crime drama in a similar way to spotlight very much based on on, on real journalism real 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 world news um but this is a fictional screenplay um however since this is, the film has now come out amanda knox who went through some very sim- a very similar experience in her life um said that this film has undermined her life story and has taken elements from it into the script do we have a, a take on those allegations charles layla yeah just that i think it's um i i think that this controversy has been uh, a bit ginned up i i understand that amanda knox uh might resent people using her story and image as you know it did a lot at the time of of her actual incident happening but i also think that this film is definitely using that solely as a jumping off point it alters the particulars of the circumstance to tell its own story which is really oriented around matt damon it's not so much about the daughter abigail breslin getting through you know her time in french prison or, or whatever it's um i think it's a tenuous connection at best Layla. Uh, yeah, I I kind of feel that the film tries to make it quite clear, and I think Tom McCarthy has made it quite clear that this is really not an Amanda Knox story. So I think possibly Amanda Knox should be annoyed at like all the lazy journalists, myself included, who wrote about this and mentioned her because you know we perhaps uh, should have done a little bit better uh, than dragging her into our film analysis. Um, but I mean, for the most, I don't know if she's seen it. I, I can imagine there's elements with what happens with Abigail Bredesen's character that she would particularly object to. But I think Charles is just completely right that this is much more about, I mean, if anybody could be more annoyed, I suppose it would be Amanda Knox's dad, who would just be like, how could you tell my story? Because this is so mm-hmm. focused on Matt Damon. I mean, I wouldn't even say that the equivalent, like Abigail Bredesen's character is even like, the third she's probably the third supporting character or something yeah Hmm. okay let's put some scores on this and any final comments on Stillwater Layla uh yeah going into this like maybe a two um you know trailer did nothing for me I kind of thought Spotlight was a bit 
overrated and uh, not a fan of Damon. But yeah, I kind of like, I feel like every good review of mine ends up being the same where I'm just like, yeah, it was weird. I dug it. But uh, well, that's kind of what it, this was for me. Like, we're just going to throw a load of Chekhov's guns in the air. Only about half of them will go off. It'll just seem like a very different film every 10 minutes or so. But yeah, it was weird. I dug it for. <laughs> and in retrospect four as well is yeah that, yeah you, you paint a wonderful picture and i see a lot of yeah Chekhov's guns in the air that's an, a, quite quite a picture charles what, you, what what scores did you give this yeah no layla makes a good point that the third act of this movie is absolutely buck wild whatever you think that this movie was doing up to the point of there being like half an hour left on the board it takes a pretty hard turn into some very strange territory which actually makes a lot more sense once you find out that the script was written in part by jacques odiard's guy who, you know, in Deepon and mm-hmm. other films, the intense third act turn is always kind of his his weird thing. Uh, anyway, so yeah, uh, as anticipation, I would say like three after Spotlight, I, I was willing to give this guy the time of day, especially if he decided to go back to making, you know, big league movies instead of another Timmy Failure film. Uh, so yeah, three, anticipation, enjoyment, I'd say about probably three as well. Uh, maybe just being in the States and the whole idea that it's a really self-scrutinizing movie uh, for Americans about America, that might have done something for me. But then, in retrospect, it really just did two. This didn't didn't move me in any sort of way. I don't think Matt Damon is giving a super thrilling performance. He seems kind of out of his element. Well, they have it. Stillwater and Zola both in cinemas this weekend. Also in cinemas, um, dusted off by the BFI as part of their Betty Davis Hollywood Rebel season is now Voyager, which we're going to talk about right now. In Now Voyager, Charlotte Vale, a troubled young woman subjected to years of emotional abuse at the hands of her wealthy, domineering mother, Mrs. Henry Vale, is treated at a Vermont hospital by a kindly psychiatrist, Dr. Jackwith. With an interest in helping others in need and before returning home, she takes a cruise and falls for the married architect, Jerry Durant. At the end of the voyage, Jerry must return to his jealous and cruel wife, and Charlotte must be reunited with her mother, leaving both of them unclear as to whether they can ever be happy. So now Voyager, one of many Betty Davis films that the BFI is showing as part of this big retrospective season. Layla, what did you make of it? Was this a first view for you? No, this was actually the subject of the only film studies lecture I went to at university. But, you know, with my great foresight, I was just like, no, I shouldn't take this module. None of this will ever come in handy. Um, Yeah. Um, So I remember very much going into it and they kind of set the scene about how, like, what you have to appreciate with now Voyager is just how shocking it would have been to see Betty Davis, a star of this caliber, appearing on screen in such kind of a state as she does, completely transformed. And I think it really speaks to, like, the brilliance of Betty Davis that she is you know, in so many of her roles, she's really willing to like go there and kind of appear quite, you know, with almost very little vanity. And I think this is really one of her most astonishing performances. Like this central character of Charlotte has got such kind of complexity and, you know, neurosis and edge, but warmth and softness and the kind of elegance at times. And at other times, you know, she sort of is able to kind of portray quite like an internalized state of mental health and anguish in like this very like subtle physical way. Yeah, I loved Now Voyager. I'm amazed I didn't do more of those classes. 
<laughs> Charles, what do you make of this? And also, we tend to have you on the podcast to talk about, you know, quite buzzy, uh, you know, cutting edge films like like Azola, something that maybe plays on social media and Gen Z themes, maybe. But what's your relationship with, uh, uh, you know, classic Hollywood films? Well, like I this? found out about Now Voyager via TikTok. No, I'm kidding. kidding. Um, Although this actually was my first time seeing the film. I had not seen it before. Uh, I watched it with my girlfriend who had seen it. She was actually surprised. She thought this would be really up my alley. Um, I like melodramas a lot. Uh, I I love the sort of unwieldy, you know, overwhelming emotion that they're just these like outbursts of raw feeling, uh, which is something that you see tamped down uh, in a lot of modern cinema, especially commercial cinema. And so it's nice to be able to revisit something like that. Uh, The Betty Davis aspect playing against type for the first part of the movie before she becomes the Betty Davis we know and love. Also very impressive. Uh, I wonder, you know, I didn't do the research, look into the silent era, but is this like the first woman gets a makeover and guys just absolutely <laughs> lose their minds movie? I don't know. Uh, but I, I, I do wish... looking into it. <laughs> if this was like the 80s, there would have been like a fun peppy montage where like Betty Davis, you know, gets a perm and learns how to do makeup <laughs> and like gets better fitting clothes, all this stuff. Uh, but no, I loved it. I love... um. I love movies about exacting, overbearing mothers, uh, and this one, I mean, this has not only a, a doozy in uh, Betty Davis's mother character, but then later on the wife of Paul Henreid, I believe, uh, from Casablanca. Uh, it's so much like great, just intense berating of the child, and then the kid eventually learning to stick up for themselves, have a life of their own, you know, uh, cultivate their own life. Uh, it's I, I loved it. Great to watch. I find it so fascinating watching a film like this, just how much the history off screen is all there on screen. So Betty Davis, you know, it's a theme of this BFI retrospective, but it's one that is, you know, very much talked about whenever there's discussion around Betty Davis is how much she really fights for these roles that, as you said, Layla, are unglamorous or um, wouldn't necessarily fit into the star persona. She loved doing her own makeup. She loved this, the idea of transformation on screen. She also said, you know, coming from a Massachusetts background herself, that she'd lived this life and she pursued roles that she very much cared about and responded to rather than just taking whatever the studio system gave her and you know through legal battles and you know you know tete-a-tetes with studio heads she created the sort of star she could be maybe more of a character actress type of lead than a than what we see elsewhere in the studio system i must say i know we're talking about it under a betty davis header here but i think claude rains is fantastic in the in the scenes that he turns Mm. up in what an amazing actor to always see you know deployed when he is yeah, and what an amazing portrayal of kind of a mental health journey that seems kind of like, I mean, I'm not an expert on this era, but it seems like light years ahead of its time in terms of like, oh, we're going to have a character with a mental health struggle and we're not going to weaponize her, that against her. Mm-hmm. This is, maybe I don't know what a sanitarium is, but as institutions go, this is like a pretty chilled out place. There's nothing like, you know, horrific or dystopian about this mental health facility. It's really just a place for her to go and chill and relax for a few months and, you know, get herself together. Um, Which I I don't know if they're still like that. Maybe. Uh, Who knows? But I agree that there is a lot more psychological interiority uh, to this character than we saw from a lot of uh, characters at the time, especially in melodramas, and I think that that comes again from what you're saying about Betty Davis, which is that she's someone who gave a lot of thought to the nature of her own movie stardom and how she would be, uh, you know, seen on screen and how that would affect her her persona in real life. Uh, and you see that she was able to wield her authority in Hollywood, being you know a name brand star, 
to right to get herself roles like this and to get people to see movies like this which i think represent you know they use the term uh women's picture almost as a pejorative but i think something like this proves that it doesn't have to be uh that you can tell these stories about nothing more than you know feelings having feelings and that they can still grip you that they can still seem important and relevant yeah, and when I was uh, reading this, I I found um, now Voyager on this list on the very great list on the VF, BFI of like the, you know the ten great melodramas, and I did start thinking about like well what is it that makes something a melodrama? Because we've suddenly got like you know we've got Max Steiner's incredible orchestral score like really ramping up the emotions of this, but like me watching it, it didn't feel, and I don't wonder whether the definition has changed, but it didn't feel melodramatic to me. It seemed like a lot of kind of quite nuanced adult conversations and compromises and like quite realistic journeys. So I don't know, is that, am I just wrong with what a melodrama is? I think it's it's worth scrutinizing that, isn't it? Because yeah, if, if this is what was counted as melodramatic, maybe the, maybe is that ad- adjective became pejorative over the years once, you know, once after the 50s and 60s and onwards there was a, a grounded authenticity that was seen as the um the, the goal of cinema that, that was something that was really real in the new hollywood period onward maybe melodramatic became a, a pejorative term but yeah there, there is real um body and depth to this film I, I think um having those you know mature conversations about uh heavy topics that is you know the essence of melodrama a lot of which engaged with social issues of the time through you know the lens of one woman's struggle uh we see something like uh, imitation of life which is one of the mm-hmm. great all-time melodramas which kind of tackled racism and colorism within uh the black community uh and so i think that this is not necessarily as uh, politically pointed as that one but it still gets at uh these real things like depression which is i think something that was not really analyzed something that was not thought so much about at the time uh and this movie extends a lot of empathy a lot of patience to someone who is learning uh, how to change their own behavior. Hmm. I think as you as you raise the, the question of certain tones and styles and moods uh, sort of going in and out of favor like melodrama, uh, Betty Davis experienced that herself. You know, she she has these couple of you know rise and fall narratives with these peaks with you know all about Eve and whatever happened to Baby Jane in the early sixties. But after that, her very specific talents found their place more in genre movies, hammer horror movies, um, during what I believe some of our colleagues call the hagsploitation era of her of her career. Um, and the you know the the film industry didn't really find a way to use her in the way that these films did in the nineteen forties. But before before we wrap up, um is, are there any other Betty Davis films we'd want to shout out to recommend to listeners who maybe are going on that journey with the BFI retrospective? Um, Layla? Um, you've named the three that I've seen. So, Which one Which one would you go for? <laughs> I mean, I think All About Eve is my top 10 films ever made. So, But I think the, those, I, I guess those are the, like the three essential performances, are they? All About Eve, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, and this. I think, you know, those are three fine choices because they kind of illustrate the full breadth of her career. We have something like Now Voyager, which was sort of um, how she initially announced herself. And then these later films, you know, All About Eve and Baby Jane, both of which portray her as sort of like. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more. 
and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A desperate, crumbling, uh, really uh, unflattering portrayal that sort of exists to counteract that earlier glamour of her, her own movie stardom. And so, I mean, even just those three alone, you get a pretty succinct summary of um, the trajectory of her career. I'd just like to make a quick shout out for the 1980 kids horror movie, The Watcher in the Woods, which um, friends and family and colleagues of a certain age who had that on VHS in the 1980s. And it's one of her sort of very, very late performances where she was just, she just looked like a child's imagination uh, drawn a picture of a witch, of a scary witch. And that's what she looked at at that point. And it's just an absolute testament to how these classic Hollywood stars had a look and that look uh, could stick with them and still be so transfixing even in their late age. It's not a great movie, but if we're going to go deeper than the absolute classics, it's one worth looking at, I think. Well, also the excellent episode of Inside Cinema that I've just seen all about her career. Oh, I, I, I'll, I'll shout that out. That's my day job on Inside <laughs> Cinema. We worked with Anna Bogutskaya, who's been on uh, Truth and Movies before, uh, doing an episode called All About Betty, which gives, I think, a pretty good, a pretty fair introduction to her talents and her her screen life. Mm. Anyway, that is now Voyager playing up and down the country thanks to the BFI re-releasing it and also as part of the Hollywood Rebel season that the BFI have put together. Do check that out, listeners. It's always fun to go back into older cinema, classic Hollywood, and see how they used to make them. Layla, Charles, thank you so much for joining me this week. It's been such a pleasure talking films with you. Listeners, you can get in contact with us at the usual channels at LWLies on Twitter or email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com. Next week, Ryan Reynolds is in Free Guy. We have New Order, a very contentious movie. It'll be fascinating to see what we make of that. And in Film Club, we're going right back to young Ryan Reynolds in Van Wilder. It's going to be a fun one to go and revisit, I'm sure. Listeners, subscribe wherever you pod. If your podcast player of choice lets you leave reviews, we'd love it if you left one for us. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.